Hi, welcome to the Fast Life with Diabetes podcast. My name is Lucy Fisher. On this podcast, we'll discuss everything related to intermittent fasting and type 1 and type 2 diabetes. We'll share tips and tricks, and we'll reveal some of the challenges that we've all faced as we go through this journey. We'll also have some fascinating guests that will share their stories. Thanks so much for joining. It's going to be a great show. Also, before we get started, I just want to remind you that I am not a doctor. Before beginning an intermittent fasting protocol or making changes to your medication, I highly recommend that you speak to your doctor. Hi everyone, thanks so much for joining today. Today we have on Ginger Vieira, and I'm so excited for you to hear this interview with her. Ginger is a full-time writer and content manager for Beyond Type 1 and Beyond Type 2. She also has written five books relating to subjects about diabetes, and Ginger has had type one since she was a teenager. Her writings involve everything related to diabetes type one and type two. She's a wealth of knowledge on a variety of different subjects and topics. In today's interview, we of course talk about intermittent fasting. Ginger has been doing intermittent fasting for around eight years, which is a really long time. And we go in depth about how she exercises while fasting, and that's become a really important part of her daily routine. She gives a lot of really helpful tips and tricks about how to fast and exercise. I think this interview is very informative, and I think you'll find it useful. So I really hope you enjoy it. Hi, Ginger. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to speak to you. You're, and before we get into this, I'll I'll let you introduce yourself, but you've been in the diabetes space for a really long time. And when I came to intermittent fasting, I saw an article that you wrote about it for fasting with type one. There was a couple things that were happening around that time. And your article really helped me sort of understand how how I might do it. So I appreciate that you wrote it and I will link to it in the the show notes because it was very helpful at the beginning. Good. Um, I'm so glad. I'd love to hear that. <laughs> yeah. But I'll let you introduce yourself. So go ahead. Sure. My name is Ginger Vieira. I have lived with type one since I was 13. That's 1999. Um, I am 36 today. And I also have celiac and fibromyalgia and a like sort of lazy thyroid that needed a boost, but now I'm not taking thyroid medicine, but the boost really helped. So who knows what that is, but um I have been writing about type one and type two diabetes for about 15 years. I was a freelancer for many years writing for every website and it's diabetes strong where you found that intermittent fasting article. Um, I love diabetes strong and the couple that runs it and they let me really write whatever I wanted about fasting and really go into great detail there. Um, I also write books about diabetes that you can find on Amazon and I really fell into, I went to school for writing, but I fell into like the health and fitness world of diabetes because I competed kind of accidentally fell into, I was just trying to take better care of myself during my later college years. And I started training and weightlifting and then ended up getting really strong and competing in powerlifting and kind of building a little niche there um, in the diabetes community for talking about exercise and diabetes. And that's actually the bodybuilders in my gym is where I first learned about fasted exercise and the benefits of fasting, um, in the morning. So, so, oh, so that's where you learned about intermittent fasting was 
In not intermittent time. fasting. They okay. were just doing what they call fasted exercise. Um, I don't know if you want to get into that now, but you know. Well, tell me first about how you found intermittent. Well, first of all, you're type, you're type one. Yes. Uh, Cause I know people listen to this podcast are type one and type two. So you're type one. How do you treat your type one? I currently, um, and for a long time have been taking, doing MDI, taking Lantists. I've tried the other newer long acting insulins. I just, they are not as stable for me as Lantus. Um, and then I was obviously just doing rapid acting for meals and corrections until recently, the last year I've been using a Frezza for most of my, I still take a teeny amount of Novolog every day, um, but I use a Frezza as much as possible and I love it. And so I still also, for anyone, just wanna make sure you don't get confused, a Frezza only replaces um, mealtime and correction insulin, not your background insulin. So I still take Lantus. I did use an insulin pump for many years and I have decided I do not care for them. I do wear a CGM as well. Yeah, actually I have you to thank also for a Frezza because your yeah. review of a Frezza was one of the things that I, I had been researching it, but you had such a thorough review of a Frezza. I was like, I really got to try this. So <laughs> you really changed my life. You didn't even realize it, but uh, your intermittent <laughs> fasting article and your Frezza article, those are two things that I think have really changed things for me. So thank you for both. Cool. Thank you. And for anyone listening, that Afreza deep dive is putting inhaled insulin to the test on Beyond Type 1. And it's long and it's detailed and um, yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. And it if you're new to Afreza, it really helps you sort of understand how it works because it's not like an injected insulin. It's, it has a totally different action and yeah, everything's different, different about it. Yeah. 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 So it takes a little bit of getting used to, but your article helped me sort of do it without being scared of it. Cool. Good. So, <laughs> yeah. And actually, before we move on, Lantis, I, I heard another podcast that you had done a long time ago, and you were saying that the Lantis peaks were sort of um, giving you trouble. How, how did you work that out? Yeah, actually. So in people who are pretty sensitive to insulin or take like a smaller amount, you might notice that after in that like five to eight hour window after injecting Lantis is when it peaks in efficacy. And um, that for me is around 3 a.m. And, uh, so <laughs> that's not, you know, convenient. Um, and for me, it's this very careful line of like 12 units doesn't make my blood sugar drop at 3 a.m. And, um, but then I spike in the morning during Dawn phenomenon, 13 units makes my blood sugar drop at 3 a.m., but is enough insulin to not let me spike. Um, during down phenomenon. And so it's kind of this trade off of which one do you want to deal with and prevent the low at 3am by going to bed a little bit higher or, and for me, it's like a hundred point drop. If I have just one unit too much of Lantus. Um, so I won't get into the whole, <laughs> how I'm figuring it out, but I've, a, I've been playing around with it a lot lately, actually. Yeah. You, uh, and that's one of the things that you, you write about is how much trial and error you do. Like you just, you're a constant, you're constantly like experimenting with yourself. Yeah. yeah. Instead of yeah. getting frustrated and pissed off, like, all right, this is just a juggling act. And what, what can I adjust to make things smoother? Right. Right. And maybe actually I have one more follow-up on this topic. So you were on a pump. It's you were on a pump, like really early on. We're on it for like a long time. Right. And then what made you decide you didn't want to be on a pump anymore? 
I was on a pump for 10 years, really the first 10 years of having type one. I was the, actually the first, this is how new pumps were. As I was the first teenager at Dartmouth Hitchcock hospital that they let go on an insulin pump in 1999, which is just amusing, you know? Um, and I just, my skin hated it. I hated eventually having it attached to my body. I ended up in DKA puking my brains out one morning because my pump had been on when I was stringing Christmas lights up at the outside the movie theater I worked at in the middle of New Hampshire winter. And I went to bed at my friend's house for a sleepover with completely toasted insulin. And I didn't know it. Um, and it just really put, I just started having a lot of trust issues and it started giving me more anxiety than comfort. Um, and I did try a pump again later. I tried Omnipod and I just hate having it on my body. And I hate that I can't know for sure that the insulin got into my body. And so that's, that's what it is. Yeah, I know. It definitely adds a level of complication because you are, like you said, you're not sure like what, what happened with the insulin and the pump and yeah, especially like, I noticed, right? yeah. And I didn't realize this myself. Um, and I actually, I, I'm, there's a reason I'm asking about this because not too many people that I've spoken to do MDI and intermittent fasting because I feel like the, one of the ways I sort of control for things with intermittent fasting with my pump is I'll change the different basal rates. Like if I'm going to fast for, mm -hmm. do like alternate day fasting, then I can scale my basal wave down. Like if you're on MDI, you got to really think about this stuff. Right. But um, yeah. you're right. Like I just, you know, like in terms of the pump, like I'm on Fiasp for my, uh, the insulin, the basal drip, right? And I noticed like at the end of the third, like by the third day, my blood sugars were trending really high. And I was talking to my endo about it. And she goes, yeah, because of the, the formulation of Fiasp, it like, it occludes the cannula to some yeah. extent. And like, yeah. you're not getting, so she's like, change it out every two days. But like, oh. you, you, you can never, it, it's, it takes one of the variables out. Yeah, yeah. I don't have the patience for that. It's too, that's too stressful to me. And yeah. there's pros and cons, obviously, of pumping versus MDI. And we all get to pick which cons we want to tolerate and deal with. And yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So tell me how you found intermittent fasting. I found intermittent fasting after, I believe it was after my first pregnancy. Um, and I was, I had about eight pounds of postpartum weight that was annoying and wouldn't budge. And I was done breastfeeding, which is an important thing to put in there. I really wouldn't recommend intermittent fasting if you are still breastfeeding. Um, and I, I just, I had heard about it from a friend who's not, um, a type one and I already had learned from the bodybuilding crowd. So in bodybuilding you're they do a lot of walking first thing in the morning, slow walking. Cause they don't want to burn muscle, right? They're precious muscle. They just want to burn fat. And my coach said, you should really try that. Then you wouldn't have to eat before walking. And then your blood sugar shouldn't drop because you're in a fasted state and you're burning body fat. And so I was already very familiar with that. Um, but it never occurred to me to continue the fast beyond. Right. And I started doing the eight sixteen fasting schedule. I would, um, start eating around one o'clock and I was on a, like, I'd say, low carb compared to the average American, but I still, I, I believe at the, I've experimented a lot with carb amounts and I just really believe that I should be able to eat and enjoy strawberries and even chocolate once a day, you know? Um, so I do eat some carbs, uh, and 
I was eating what I would say is very clean, but I always let myself have one treat a day, usually at night, like some type of dessert, homemade cookies or Hershey kisses, whatever it is. It doesn't really have rules and parameters on it, right? Um, not binging. I did not do the, you. I heard you refer to it once as like the dirty fast, where you fast all day and then eat a whole pizza at night. That doesn't sound like it would feel good to me, um, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and uh, so within... I mean, I don't remember really specifically tracking it, but I did lose the eight pounds. Um, and I'd say it was within six months, something, you know, it, it didn't take long. And it was, it also just, I fell in love with the simplicity it offered for the first half of my day. And especially as a mom with a little kid of not wanting to worry about going to the playground and going low because I have insulin on board from breakfast, it eliminates that fear, you know, and as a person on MDI, um, I, instead of adjusting my basal rate, I found that actually my blood sugar would rise when I didn't eat breakfast. So around like 9am and that's your liver releasing some glucose because it's like, Hey, you haven't eaten and I'm trying to, you know, keep you functioning and keep you awake. Um, and that happens in everybody, but the non-diabetic produces insulin for it someone on a pump can adjust basal rates for it. I had to take like little micro doses of Novolog, like a half unit um, or a quarter unit, depending on what I saw on my CGM. And, and it wasn't Dawn fact. Phenomenon. It was just, you think, because you, because you'd already been well, up for a while. There's, right? That's another. So Dawn Phenomenon is usually right when you wake up. And I do experience that. This is more later. This is like 9, 10 a.m. Um, and I don't, today I still fast, but I don't really make it till one o'clock just because I'm not like, I, I'm not trying to really lose weight. I just enjoy not eating breakfast until a lot later. So I usually make it between 10 and 11 lately. Sometimes I make it to one, but I'm not like, I don't have like the motivation to be like, I got to make it to one because I'm not trying to lose weight. Right. I think my lighter version of fasting helps me maintain my current weight. Um, but so there's that nine, around 9, 10 a.m., I do start to spike again. And that's that liver releasing a little sploosh of glucose. And so I take a half unit for that. And I did find some days that getting all the way to 1 p.m., I would either need another little half unit around noon, or when I did finally eat, I would need more than I would normally take for that meal, like just one unit more insulin than I would normally take for that meal because my liver probably was like, come on, eat some food, right? Um, just balancing, just, you know, compensating for the lack of actual calories being consumed. Do you, would you ever go low at, at those points, like in the, in the morning time between, before you eat? I mean, a, a critical part of getting started with intermittent fasting is making sure that your background insulin is accurate, right? And it's a, and same with fasted exercise. If going for a walk first thing in the morning or just not eating breakfast causes you to drop low, your basal, basal insulin dose or doses are probably too high. So we don't want to have to feed our insulin, right? We shouldn't have to eat just to keep ourselves from going low, which you want to dial that background insulin dose as low as you can to maintain your goal range and not drop low during exercise. And going for a dog walk fasted in the morning is a great way to test whether I say dog walk, going for a walk. I walk my dog a lot. Um, it's a great way to test if, if your basal rate um, or your background insulin dose is accurate. 
Right, right. Yeah, you know, it, it's kind of interesting. I I notice that the longer I get into my fast, I, I, I it just goes to show how everybody's body is different because the longer I get into my fast, like the less insulin I need, mm-hmm. you know, um, like sometimes yeah. I'll have a very, very early eating window and I'll close by like 1130, okay. uh, just depending on the day. And then by the time I wake up and like, let's say I make it till like 10 or 11 the next day, uh, by that point, I'll have like scaled my insulin way back. It, it yeah. just depends. I don't, I don't get that rise that you're talking about, but it's, it's good. It's good to know that like every body has a different situation. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, we can't really prove this, but I would wonder if actually our bodies are reacting the same, but you're taking Fias through a basal rate and I'm taking Lantus, right? Because your body is going to, there's no way that your liver is going to be like, nah, Lucy doesn't need the extra glucose, but ginger does, right? Like it's just the physiological norm of when you don't eat that your liver releases more glucose. So it sounds like your, your fiasp and your basal rates are already compensating for that. You know, they're already set there. Yeah, you know, you're totally right. And I guess it's a little hard for me to pinpoint because I have, I'm using loop. So loop is constantly mm. adjusting in the background. Whereas right. with you on, on MDI and the steady Lantus, like there's, there's right. none of that adjustment going on in the background. So yeah, you're right. We're, we're different. We're standing on a different foundation. Yeah. That's interesting. So you started intermittent fasting after your first child was born and that was how many years ago now? It was a, it was a while ago, right? Almost eight now. So yeah. <laughs> so even, you know, intermittent fasting hasn't been popular for that long. So you were kind of like ahead of the curve with it. Um, you know, my friend is very into nutrition. So that's probably why I heard about it a little ahead of the curve, but I was also very immersed in the fitness and nutrition world. I was a personal trainer. I had my antennas out for this kind of thing for sure. Um, and then after my second child was born, I actually for like a week and a half, maybe two weeks accidentally kind of did a dirty fast because we were trying to pack our house and my husband gets really, ex-husband now gets really stressed out with the idea of packing and moving. And I had two kids at home. I was working part-time from home uh, for diabetes daily. And I had again, eight pounds of postpartum weight that I wanted to lose. And I didn't have time to think about losing weight. Instead, I just was racing up and down the stairs, packing as many boxes as I could while caring for a two and a half year old and a newborn. And I would basically not have time to eat all day. And then I would eat like a gluten-free pizza at night. And I ended up losing eight pounds in less than two weeks. I don't recommend it. Um, And it it was really just the culmination of chaos. Uh, But fasting did help me not go low all day while I was racing around like a maniac, you know? Yeah. Um, And I didn't notice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about fasting is you can, people think, oh, especially people that are new to fasting. If I fast, I won't have any energy. It's like, no, it's like quite the opposite, you know? Yeah. And that's a great point because you really have to get over this idea that like, you're going to die because your head, you will feel the first time, you know, the first week you do it, you'll feel like uncomfortable of ignoring that hunger pang and letting your brain switch over to like burning fat and a little bit of ketones for fuel instead of calories that you just consumed. And you have to just like, just experience it and feel it and talk yourself through it because it's not an emergency. And we've been kind of trained to think that hunger is an emergency and the hunger does dissipate. Um, once you get past for me, like once that I get past that, like 10 AM kind of 
spot or 9 a.m. or something to make it if I wanted to get to 1 p.m., you know? Um, yeah. So how, so you, you, you end up breaking your fast anywhere from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m., depending on the day. And then how, how many hours do you eat? And I know, and this is a thing, another thing I want to talk about too, is you've been doing it for so long and your fasting protocol has probably evolved over time. But now when you, how, how, how long of an eating window do you normally have? Yeah. Um, so I'm a big fan of listening to your body on top of fasting, because when I was doing that rigid 16, eight schedule at a certain point, and, the, and I've kind of started that 16, eight, I've done it intentionally at different times of life in the last eight years. And at a certain point, I just sometimes feel like, you know what, my body has had a little, enough of this after, you know, maybe it's four or five months. I don't know. Um, and I'm going to start eating a little earlier for a little while. Uh, and it's just listening to my body feeling like suddenly fasting feels a little stressful. Maybe it's just that like subtle physical cue. Um, and I think it's important to listen to that if you are, you know, like you don't have to do the 16, eight die hard for the rest of your life, just because it really helped you for six months, like listen to your body and be flexible. And, um, so I think that's really, I really believe in that. So today I always, I mean, I, I do ex fasted exercise every single day. And so I definitely never eat before 10 AM. And then I usually start working around 10 AM. So then that really can lead me to forgetting to eat until one or two, <laughs> but depending on the number of miles I ran in the morning, it, I tend to want to eat sooner on my more intense exercise days. Um, and sometimes not, it's really, I just listen to my body. If my brain is like, I cannot write another sentence until I get some food. If I find that it's getting in the way of me wanting to like be productive at work, I am a full-time writer, content manager at beyond type one and beyond type two. I don't think I mentioned that earlier. And, um, so I just listen to my body and see what feels right. I love that message because I, and I notice this with myself, I've, I'm very like strict with myself and very rigid and I'm trying so hard not to do that anymore because, and I think in part type one has like caused me to be this way because I'm like, I need to eat this oh, sure. food at this time and then give this amount of insulin. Otherwise I'm gonna have a problem. And I'm, I've become due to that so rigid just with everything related to my body and including fasting. Like I got to make it to this time. And I, and I think to myself, yeah. like, I want to, I want to fast for the rest of my life and I know I will, but you know, maybe at some point in time, like right now I do a 19 five, but usually I make it to 20 or 22 hours most days. But like, what if, mm. you know, I want to at some point say, Hey, I want to do like 16, eight for like a few weeks or a few months. Like yeah. I gotta be able to allow myself to do that. And I like that you, you've been doing it for a long time. So you're listening to your body. I think you have to be flexible because just because a 20 hour fast works for you this year doesn't necessarily mean that's what is going to feel good for your body two years from now. And changing that doesn't mean you failed. It means you're listening to your body. Um, I have done, I used to do more uh, intentional 20 hour fasts or what, you know, whatever that longer full day. And um, I just didn't, I didn't really enjoy how it feels for the most part. So I don't make an intention to do that unless maybe I'm traveling, then I'll intentionally fast during a day of traveling across the country because I don't want to eat airport food and you can pack snacks, but it's a good opportunity to just play around with a day of fasting. Um, and, uh, and type one can, like you were saying, it can make you so neurotic. And I think it's, and that neurotic 
detail does help us thrive, right? But I think it's really good to check in with yourself and look at, okay, let's calm this down and just be a little flexible. And hey, it's a holiday weekend. Let's go out to breakfast and have breakfast. Like it's okay. Um, And for me, fasting is like, it's a part of my way of life as you've described as well, because the benefits of it are so wonderful. And especially in terms of exercise, Um, you know, I exercise between my walking my dog and running or weights at least close to two hours every morning sometimes. So, and some of that's really light exercise, right? Dog walking. Um, And then I walk again later in the afternoon and I create a fasted environment for that by even if I've already started eating by making sure I don't have rapid acting insulin on board. So if it's a Fresa, that's out of my system with one hour, which is really wonderful um, for a fasted exercise. If it's, uh, you know, Novolog Fies, that's more uh, three to four hour window. Um, I'm getting off topic here, but I do not, I eat until you asked about my fasting window. I eat like usually up until 10 PM. Uh, I don't really even care or think about it, to be honest. I just, I like eating in the second half of the day. And I usually start my day with some kind of plant-based carb, whether it's, um, veggie medley from the freezer or fruit. I love a pile of strawberries and a, a handful of cashews, um, or veggie medley and breakfast sausage, at 11, noon, whatever. Um, so plants and fat is really my goal for my first meal and probably the same for my second meal. <laughs> but, uh, like hummus and veggies, um, more fruit and another type, you know, cheese. Uh, I, it goes on. It's all just clean, real food, simple. And then dinner is always um, meat and veggies. And then I save some room for something yummy at night. Again, which we already mentioned earlier, I think, but homemade desserts or Hershey's Kisses or I've mean, eaten a lot of skinny pop popcorn lately, which really doesn't have any sugar on it, but it's just a fun thing to indulge in mindless crunching. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's good to know. And I think, uh, and I've heard you speak on at other places about your diet and, and I think too, it's, it's, I like, I like both of your messages about listening to your body, about how much fasting you should do and when, and then also what you what you eat because you can fast and and eat what you need to eat to make your body feel the best that it can feel and if that includes a dessert you know have the dessert cover it with insulin enjoy it, it i enjoy it and i don't see any reason not to personally you know like I, it's a, another thing to learn how to balance your blood sugar around and it i enjoy it i just i don't really feel like there's a reason not to uh, my a1c is been in the low sixes or high fives for years. I had two pregnancies doing MDI. Um, you know, you can, you can achieve whatever you want to achieve, but, but you just have to problem solve and like, look at what's going on and when you need more insulin, when, when do you need to tweak down? Yada, yada, yada. You know, it's all just a balancing act. There's no one perfect solution that we must all follow. You have to learn your body and be a problem solver. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love both that message. I think that makes, it makes a lot of sense. And it's, it's something I, I struggle with a little bit. And I know that you, you talked about this in your articles and your books about diabetes burnout and just thinking through all those things. But I think a lot of that can be countered with just really listening to your body and not being so harsh with yourself all the time. Yeah. And, so. and I want to add that like what the food I just described, that's my main, like 
Monday through Friday daytime routine, but I absolutely enjoy gluten-free pizza at least once a month. Um, I make ham sandwiches with gluten-free pita bread pockets that fall apart, but they still taste good. <laughs> um, you know, like I, I throw in non-perfect foods um, all throughout the month that just, you know, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. Thank you for the permission. Sometimes you need to hear it. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to, wanna, I definitely don't want to portray that I eat perfectly all month long and that that's what you need to do in order to thrive or maintain your weight. It's really, I have what I feel as kind of like my basic routine and then sprinkle in some more indulgent treats that, you know, there, I don't have any food rules. My, my main philosophy I'd say is to just eat mostly real food. And the word mostly is the big thing in there, you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think the one thing intermittent fasting has helped me with is I used to crave like a lot of refined sugars and carbs and things like that. And now I don't. And mm -hmm. it sounds to me like you're also in that camp where you like to eat real foods. So yeah. I'm and, very and thankful for that. Yeah. If someone who's listening is struggling with that, the easiest way to start craving more of the real foods is to really force yourself to eat more of them because the other stuff doesn't taste like real food eventually the more you eat more of the real foods. You don't, I don't crave McDonald's or a Twinkie. I would so much rather make my own dessert at home that I know like it just tastes so much better. You know what I mean? It's not like we're sacrificing taste and pleasure of food. It's that our brain has gotten used to how good real food tastes versus the heavily processed fake food. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I want to circle back to exercise because that's something that you have dedicated a lot of time and effort into figuring mm -hmm. out with type one. So maybe you can just tell us, you know, you've been exercising for a really long time. You alluded to some of that earlier, but maybe you can kind of take us through your progression. Some of the things you've learned about low intensity exercise, high intensity exercise, fasting with it, you know, just walk us through your, what you've sure. learned with exercise. I mean, I think there's three things that everyone needs to learn and consider when you're about to exercise as a person with type one or type two taking insulin. One is what type of exercise are you doing? Is it aerobic or anaerobic? Aerobic, we also call cardio, burns glucose for fuel. Anaerobic, which could be sprinting, weightlifting, CrossFit, lactic acid that you produce during anaerobic, ex sorry, yes, during anaerobic exercise gets converted into glucose. That is one of the main reasons. There's a few reasons why anaerobic spikes your blood sugar, but the main reason is that that lactic acid, when you're doing something that you can only really perform for a few seconds or under two minutes, right? Um, versus jogging continuously for 30 minutes, that lactic acid gets converted to glucose to cycle back to your muscles to give them fuel because you can't get oxygen to the cells fast enough during that intense two minute or 30 second. And that spikes your blood sugar and people get really mad, but it's actually your body doing what it's supposed to do, except for the whole produce extra insulin part, right? Um, so that's the first thing is figure out, are you doing aerobic exercise or anaerobic exercise? And some aerobic exercise can turn into anaerobic exercise. At the end of my three mile run, there's this hill. And if I decide to power up that hill, at a pace that I can only sustain for 30 seconds, that can cause a huge spike in my blood sugar, even though I just spent 30 minutes jogging. Um, so there's annoying little variables like that to pay attention to. 
Um, and then the other thing is how much rapid acting insulin do you have on board or if your basal rate's too high. So, um, you know, we talked already about fasted exercise, but I really believe that the easiest way to exercise with type one or type two on insulin without dropping low is to make sure your basal rate isn't too high and then exercise before you eat, not after. Doctors always teach you exercise before you eat, uh, sorry, after you eat, cut your insulin dose down or eat an extra 15 grams of carbs. And that just creates a mess of variables. And you, some people will find their blood sugar rises during fasted exercise. And that could be partly from down phenomenon. It could be your liver compensating for that. You haven't eaten breakfast. doesn't matter. Take good notes and try to be consistent. Um, I don't get to exercise at the exact same time every day because every other day I'm dropping my kids off at school. Then I come home and exercise. Um, so that little time variable can be, and it's only like 45 minute difference, but it still affects when my blood sugar starts rising from not eating breakfast. So I'll stop there. because <laughs> No, no, that's, that's super helpful. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking through some of the exercises that I do and like the effects it has on my blood sugar and what endocrinologists have told me to do. Like basically most endocrinologists will tell you before you exercise, eat a banana and some mm. peanut butter or something like that, which is like probably pretty much the worst thing you can do unless you were low to start and you're going on a walk. And then in that case, maybe fine. But right. most of the time, that's not good advice. <laughs> if you have a lot of insulin on board, you're going to have to eat extra carbs. And I resent having to do that. And I don't want to have to eat when I don't want the food. And you can't always predict like, all right, if I eat after lunch and I take half my usual insulin dose from my lunch, is that going to be too much for a one and a half mile run? And what about a three mile run? And you can eliminate all of those variables by exercising before you eat so that you don't have a bolus of insulin on board, um, from, for food. Yeah, actually I have a good example of that. So last night, so normally I'm pretty good about my fasting and I'm normally pretty good about not eating like cakes and stuff like that. I, on maybe like once or twice a month, I'll eat a piece of cake. And so last night I ate a piece of cake, which was, <laughs> I was in my fasting window and I said, ah, screw it. I'm going to eat it anyway. So I ate a piece of cake. I'm glad you did. It doesn't mean yeah. good or bad. It's just a piece of cake. I it was just a piece of cake. It. I was trying not to attach yeah. too much judgment to it, but I ate a piece of cake, um, cause it was, looked really good. And my plan was in an hour to go swimming, which terrible idea. So I took, um, two, I took eight units of a Fresa, which I guess is equivalent to about five units of short acting insulin. When I took my first bite of cake and I was going to swim in an hour. So I was like, oh, the Fresa will be out of my system. And then I'll just go. And then I saw the Fresa was, and maybe it was because of the, the way the cake was absorbing into my system and the Fresa also hitting at the same time. I was getting a diagonal arrow down at 75, like right when I was like going to go out the door and I was like, Swimming always drops me low every single time without fail. I usually try to get into the pool with like a 170, 180 blood sugar, which I don't do if I'm going to go on a walk. And I definitely don't do if I'm going to do like hit exercise. Um, then I was like, so last night I skipped the pool and I was really angry with myself because I was like, this was entirely preventable. And uh, you make a really good point about the insulin on board because you really don't want to have insulin on board when you're exercising. That's like the kiss or, of death. I mean, yeah. And a Fresa, if I was eating cake, which is slow digesting, you've got that first little burst of sugar, but most of it's digesting like two hours later, I would take maybe one unit of Novolog when I ate the cake and then 
an hour later, maybe take an eight unit of Fresa or two hours later, depending on the CGM, because it digests too slowly. And so I play a lot of little games with a little bit of Novolog for those kinds of meals, a little bit of Novolog up front, and then wait till I see the arrow starting to go up. And a Fresa is so fast that you can, you know, stop a 140 with an up arrow in its tracks um, in minutes. And yeah, it's, you That's just get a variety of complicated variables and a Fresa you should almost never take before you start eating or even when you start eating. I usually take it when I'm done. Um, yeah. Depending on, you know, starting. Well, so I started a Fresa, I don't know, maybe it's been like two months now and I probably haven't had Well, that's that's not true. I had a piece of cake, but a really, really small one in that time period. Mm -hmm. And then this one last night, which was like a normal size piece of cake. So I'm I'm still learning. So that's how actually helpful. I will remember that. Yeah. I I mean, that's the one kind of annoying part of a Fresa is those longer digesting meals. You got to take some insulin in the first hour, and then two hours later, you probably need a follow up dose. Um, And I even take follow up doses of a Fresa for strawberries and cashews, which I eat every day. I take. Uh, for when I start eating or when I, it's not when I start, I just told you not to do that when I'm done eating. (laughs) And then an hour later, I look at my CGM and I can tell that I'm going to start going up again. Um, And I take another four. So that's that. But I appreciate how fast a Frezza is out of your system because I walk my dog three times a day. Right. And I like that flexibility. Um, So it, but it is a different game to learn for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm learning as I go along, but it just highlights the complications of having insulin in your system when you're trying to work out. Yeah. And And you just highlighted another um, thing that a lot of people go to, to, to survive exercise is starting with a 180 blood sugar before exercise. What I love about fasted exercise is that I can start at a hundred and I don't have to start high to, because what's, what would burn the 180 down, right. Is insulin on board or too much basal. So fasted exercise, I just love that when everything's fine tuned properly, I can start at a hundred and end at a hundred. Um, and variables to that would be, you know, if my blood sugar spikes right at the end of my run, um, or when I do like a 1.7 mile run, I go a lot faster and harder. And I do see my blood sugar spikes at the end of that. I don't take insulin before my run in anticipation of that spike. Cause I feel like that's just too dangerous and would root potentially ruin my fun, which is really what it's about. You know, I want to have fun exercising and I don't want to go low because that just stops the party in its tracks Um, versus I check as soon as I get home, I'm expecting a rise because I know what I just did usually causes a spike and I can take insulin there and, and stop the spike from really going wild. You know, do you take a Fresa to bring it down or do you take your injected? It depends on where I'm at. A Frezza, a four for that could be too much for me. Um, and I don't want to go low, obviously, after. So I usually would need a half unit to a unit of Novolog. And because I'm also going to be fasting after my run, then the the unit or half unit I take for that spike after a sprinting type run can help cover the glucose that my liver is going to produce because I'm not eating and it's now after 10 a.m. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I I keep in mind that like, it would be nice to have an extra unit of insulin on board for the next four hours. And it, so it covers that other need for a teeny bit more insulin. 
So, so when you walk your dog in the morning and I, I'm asking this cause I'm on, you know, I'm on a pump and I can change my basal rates when I, I like to do a fasted walk in the morning as well, but a lot of times I'll do it at 80% power and I'll set a target like 120, 140. Um, just because I notice that like, if I go for an hour, like maybe around the half hour mark, I'll start to like drop too low if I don't do that. And mm. I don't know if that's, who knows, who knows why that is. Maybe the basil's maybe 80%. Who knows? Maybe the basil is just too strong to begin with at that time period. I don't know. That would um, be my first guess is that you just could use a little less basil, but yeah, you're looping and that's a whole, it's so much more. It's a whole nother thing. Yeah. But do you, and I'm just curious from an MDI perspective, you don't have that situation where if you go for an hour walk, you know, you end up low at some point during that walk. If that happens to me, that tells me that I need to drop my Lantus dose. Um, and it, I don't I try not to fluctuate my Lantus doses a lot, but in the past three, you know, like three years ago, I was going through a divorce and I had to increase my Lantus by nearly five units because just because it was a very peaceful divorce, but I was selling a property, trying to find a property, getting my kids every morning from their dad's house and getting, you know, like it was just a really stressful high. I had like no time. I'd be up at 5 a.m. Boom, 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 you know, and the stress of managing everything and getting everyone resettled into two different households um, made me need more Lantus insulin. Right. And so then once that calmed down, then I had to gradually reduce it. And one way I know that I'm due for a reduction is if I start dropping during fasted dog walking in the morning. That means I have too much Lantus on board because there isn't anything else on board, right? Um, and of course, then Dom Phenomenon gets into that, but I always start with the basis of, is my Lantus dose accurate? Because that's the foundation of your house, your basal rates. If the foundation is not right, nothing else is gonna work right. Right, absolutely. And then the other thing I wanna talk about too is, so when you start, noticing an increase, like if you're doing a high intensity workout or anaerobic and you, your blood sugar starts rising for me, I treat it with something less than I would a normal correction. Do you do that? Or do you use your full correction for that? Uh, it's such a cr tricky, I mean, when you say full correction, that kind of would to me imply that I'm correcting it when it's reached its high, you know, um, I would, I would err on being more cautious because I don't want to go low because again, the low stops the party. Right. And if I have to be high for an hour out of my day, because I underestimated how much insulin I needed to correct and counter the rise from exercise, fine. That is not going to cause me to go blind. Right. Um, I'm on my blood sugar all the time. I'm not going to sit at 250 all day long. So if erring on the side of caution means I'm out of my range for an hour of the day, so be it. And I do my best to get back on track as quickly as I can. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I guess one other question I have around exercise is, so you say you exercise around two hours a day, thereabouts. That's do you ever, yeah. Yeah. Do you ever take like a, a break? Like, do you ever take a day off? And then if so, how do you change? Do you change your background insulin or do you change your mealtime insulin? Do you, how do you deal That's with a that? Great question. Um, so, I mean, I walk my dog three times a day and uh, sometimes only two if my kid's schedule means we can't fit in a dog walk before bedtime. But, um, and that's even in winter, dogs need to be walked. Don't even get me started. If you have a dog, you should be walking it. 
Um, and my dog is 12. He's fit as a fiddle. He walks like between four to six miles a day. You got to walk your dog. I never take a rest from walking my dog. And I really believe that walking is the fountain of youth and we should all be walking. And I, at what point do you really need a rest day from walking? You know what I mean? Um, unless you're obviously sick or injured. Um, so I never take that kind of rest day, but I do definitely take rest days from more intense exercise. I don't plan them. I just listen to my body. And um, if I'm feeling a little worn out, then um, I just don't exercise more intensely that day. But I do want to add that there are certainly days where I'm feeling a little tired and exercising is what charges my battery back up. So play with it and figure out what's what's the real call for a rest day. and. Um, and I also track my exercise on a calendar so I can see how many rest days I took in the last month or if I took a rest day this week and um, I can just keep an eye on it. But again, I believe it comes down to listening to your body. On the days that I don't run in the morning, I definitely need more insulin for lunch, for sure. Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense that you would need yeah. more insulin if you're not, if you don't have that exercise in your system as well. Yeah. I and I assume, yeah. Sorry. No, no, I was, I was just going to say, I know you also have fibromyalgia. Does that impact, like, if you want a rest day or, like, does that impact how you I mean, feel on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, that, that's kind of a whole other ball of wax. For several years, all I could do was walk because powerlifting, Russian deadlift training programs, I got really strong really quickly. I set, like, 14 records in two years as a newbie. Um, and as someone who's clearly prone to autoimmune diseases, I believe it, the stress of that did trigger fibromyalgia for me. And the biggest symptoms of that for me were intense muscle spasms in many areas of my body, especially my neck and my hands. I still to this day don't write without this brace around my wrist um, because the hand muscles in my hand start spasming as soon as I start typing. If I have this thing on it, it doesn't happen because it limits the movement. I don't know. Um, it's weird. Um, but then also too much exercise can trigger exhaustion, like debilitating exhaustion. And I really don't have time for that or the interest in being that tired, right? Um, so that is a very important part for me of tracking my exercise, making sure that I only ran three miles, maximum three days this week. And I weightlifting is a huge trigger for me for exhaustion. My body like can tolerate such a small amount of weightlifting, crazy small. Um, and so I have to actually make sure I do weights enough because I'm kind of scared of weightlifting, even though it was my glory at one point, you know? Um, so I don't know if, um, if that answers your question, but I, I was pretty determined to not let fibromyalgia leave me on the couch. And it was very bit by bit over the course of several years that I rebuilt my body's tolerance for more intense exercise and really cardio, I think. Um, and there's even studies on it that show that cardio is really good for people with fibromyalgia. And I do believe it cured insomnia that came with fibromyalgia and it, um, charges my battery more than it drains it, but you have to find your limits and respect those limits. Yeah, that's, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense what you're saying there. And I, I, one of the reasons that I gravitate toward you and your writing and the books that you've written, um, one of them is on diabetes burnout is emotional burnout is you, you know, you're dealing with type one celiac fibromyalgia, hypothyroidism at some point in time, how do you, how do you maintain a 
positive outlook? How do you, like, what's your attitude as you go through life with all, with these things in the background? I mean, I really believe that if you just sit there and wallow in self-pity because life is hard, you're not going to have any fun. <laughs> like you're just going to be trapped there. And life is hard for everyone, even the people who have no diseases. I can't think of anyone who doesn't have a variety of challenges. And if you think you can think of someone who doesn't have any challenges, you don't know them well enough. And so for me, it's just about like, what are solutions that I can find to help me thrive with these things on my plate? Because uh, life is short and I'm going to have fun. And for me, exercising um, amidst these high maintenance diseases is a big part of my fun. And I feel healthier than most people who don't have diseases. I feel like I have more energy than most people who don't have these diseases. And it's from paying attention, I could feel like crap if I wanted to, right? If I didn't want to pay attention, if I didn't want to look for solutions and answers and adjustments and testing my limits and respecting my limits and accepting my boundaries, right? Accepting this is what I need to deal with. If I want to feel great, I got to deal with it. And, and obviously there are conditions out there where you don't get to just power through and rebuild your tolerance for exercise. You are, you know, there are such a variety. And so um, kudos to people who really have to be strong by accepting boundaries that mean they can't leave the couch, that they do have to rest their body because that's a reality too. And instead you're building a different kind of mental resilience of embracing and accepting that these are my limits and, and I'm still a strong person and et cetera. Yeah. That's a, that's a very important point that you make. And, you know, there are I don't know if I think everybody has deals with diabetes in a different way. I have type one. I also have a deformed left hand and, you know, I have other health issues. I've had complications from diabetes, quite a few actually at this point. And, uh, it's, it's easy to like, let yourself wallow, but you make a good point. Like you, you can't really do that. You got to just move on, push forward. I mean, you can, but it's not going to help you. It doesn't right? help. It, you're it doesn't not going to be more free from your diseases. The more you resent them, it's just, it's not going to work that way. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. And before we come up on time, I mean, do you have, you're, you're, you're so prolific in the diabetes space. Is there something that you're focusing on now or an area of interest to you that you want to talk about? Hmm. Um, golly, I'm always so, um, I, I can't believe the variety <laughs> of topics that you cover. You were talking about LASIK that you had, um, oh, something that yeah. I saw and I, cause I always thought, oh, you can't get LASIK cause you have diabetes, but that's right, not true. Right. And women's yeah, issues. Yeah. And you about it's so funny that you one. heard that. Right. Because yeah. Um, if you go to, if you Google ginger Vieira beyond type one, you'll find everything I've written there. Um, but like right now I'm working on a series about diabulimia because a very good friend of mine, Asha Brown, and this is important to talk about in a podcast about a form of dieting, right? Um, very good friend of mine, Asha Brown runs, we are diabetes and she mentors and coaches people who have struggled with diabulimia, which is intentional restricting of insulin. Um, be, because you think it might help you lose weight. It does not help you lose weight It is life-threatening and can be fatal. Um, and so where I just published this morning, um, what to expect during your recovery from diabulimia and anyone listening, who's who's constantly looking for diets, who does play around even temporarily with restricting insulin, 
there are resources to help you. And I really encourage you to um, find We Are Diabetes on social media, on their website, wearediabetes.org and get support because even if you haven't gotten to the point of restricting your insulin, diabetes can really screw with your relationship with food and your body image and this constant yo-yo dieting mentality. And if it's, it's one thing, if you're experimenting and you're enjoying experimenting, but if it is tormenting you emotionally, if it's something you're really struggling and battling and, and binging and restricting, that's a reason to ask for help. Um, so I'm going to just put that out there for anyone listening who is kind of caught in a cycle of, you know, harmful dieting. Yeah, that's a really important message. I think as diabetics, we're so hyper-focused on food that that's a natural outgrowth of having type one. And I actually, it's, uh, before I knew diabolemia was a thing, I remember when I got diagnosed, I was 17 and obviously I think my blood sugars were like 600 at the time for a prolonged period of time. And I was losing a lot of weight. I didn't have any weight to really lose because I was a runner and all this stuff. But I was like, I don't know what diet I'm on, but this is amazing that I'm losing so much weight before I was diagnosed. And I was like, then I remember afterward, you know, taking the insulin and gaining the weight back. And I was like, huh, I wonder if I should let my blood sugars run high and then lose the weight again. Like I had put those two things together and I didn't do that, but I could see how you could easily go down that rabbit hole. Right. And it's not, it's not real weight loss. I want to put that out there that what you lost was not real weight loss. It was your body really suffering and struggling. Um, and, and when you, this recovery article that we just published this morning talks about how, when you start taking your insulin again, you will feel a little puffier for a short period of time because of water retention, because your body trying to get everything balanced again. Um, so definitely reach out for help if you are struggling with insulin restriction and omission. Yeah. Thanks for that. Um, is there anything else that we're, we're missing on this podcast? Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? <laughs> we could probably go on for a day. I, I know. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the good and the bad thing about you is your, your hands are in so many different topics that, you know, you could talk forever about all this stuff. So, but maybe we'll have you back on and we'll, we'll talk about some other things. Yeah, I'm sure we can find other things. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It was so nice talking to you. Thanks for having me. I love your podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, don't forget to rate and review the podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest, please email me at fastlifewithdiabetes at gmail.com. Thanks so much. Have a great day.